0: The night before Jesus was murdered, he gathered his 12 closest followers around a table just like this. Everybody was anticipating that something big was about to happen. Around that table, there was a group of men that Jesus had recruited. He had started his ministry three years earlier, and the people that he recruited, they weren't the type of people that you and I would recruit. I mean on one side you had a group of fishermen these are blue collar workers people that society had given up on back then and on the other side you had somebody who was of a royal family he had a noble birth on one side you had israelite nationalists these they call themselves zealots they're actively fighting for israel's freedom against roman oppression and then there was a tax collector Somebody who had sold out to the Romans basically realized he could make a lot of money if he would just collect taxes from his people and give it all to Rome. Jesus had this group of people, they didn't make sense to, together. They're just too different. And Jesus had spent three years walking around the countryside of Israel. He was teaching, he was preaching, he's healing people, he's feeding people, he's investing in his disciples. And more and more people started to follow him and they whispered to each other, could this be the Messiah? Is this a Messiah? See, 2,000 years ago, the word Messiah meant something very different than it means to us today. Today, the word Messiah generally means that Jesus came and saved us from our sins. But 2,000 years ago, when the people of Israel heard the word Messiah, they were thinking of something different. They're thinking of the Romans, and how they had been victims of Roman oppression for 200 years. And they were praying for a savior. They're praying for a Messiah who would free them from Roman oppression. And after three years in the countryside, Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, to the capital. He's greeted with a parade. People are laying down their coats on the road. Just, they can't wait for Jesus to come in. They're shouting, Hosanna, which means, save us. And Jesus confronts, the religious leaders, they've been accomplices to Rome. He turns tables in the temple, letting people know he's not gonna condone people taking advantage of the poor. And he tells his disciples to meet him for a secret dinner on the night of the Passover. The Passover, it was this yearly celebration of how God saved the nation of Israel from Egyptian oppression about a thousand years earlier. But it's also this meal that looked forward into the future when God would bring in a new freedom from a new oppressor, a new rescue from injustice, a political and a military uprising against the new Egypt. And so Jesus, he gathers his disciples around a table for this dinner and everyone's anticipating something big's about to happen. But only two people knew for sure. Jesus and Judas. And Jesus welcomes his disciples He takes the posture of a servant, he washes their feet, and they recline around a table just like this, and they begin to eat. And even though none of them really realize it, Jesus is sharing some of his final words with them. This is what he wants them to remember about their time together. This is the key to the mission that he started. And after all this buildup, Jesus opens his mouth, and he says in John 13, a new command I give you, Tolerate one another. As I have tolerated you, so you must tolerate one another. And the disciples, they carried on that message, and the early churches started, and everybody, they have different views, they've got different backgrounds. The disciples helped these people learn how to put up with people who were different than them, because for years, they were examples of that. And a world-changing movement of tolerance ignites. And years later, one of the writers of the, ba- the Bible, Paul, he writes a treatise on tolerance. First Corinthians 13, he says, tolerance is patient to a point. Tolerance is kind to people who deserve it. It puts up with each other. It cares about the people that care for them. It walks away if the argument is too triggering. It only dishonors people who really deserve it. It seeks the good of those who agree It gets angry, but only about things that everyone should be angry about. And it knows that its side is right and the other side is wrong, but it just doesn't lead with that. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres for people with the right ideas. Tolerance never fails. Now thankfully, that's not what happened. Some of you guys were thinking like, what version is Jesse reading out of right now? Okay, Flatirons has gone off the rails. That's that's not what Jesus said, and that is not what Paul wrote about. That's not what Christianity is known for. But what I would say is if you looked at society, both post-Christian and Christian, the way that we've treated each other the last 15 years, you might think that that's what Jesus told us to do. And it would have been understandable, right? Like if Jesus would have said, told his disciples to tolerate each other. Just think about Jesus with the disciples. He had plenty of reasons to just tolerate them. They always had the wrong ideas about what Jesus was teaching them. I mean, Jesus was teaching them about serving each other and regularly these guys are arguing about which one of them is gonna be the greatest. I mean, these guys couldn't even stay awake for a few hours the night that Jesus is being betrayed. Jesus had so many reasons to just tolerate the disciples, but instead, he loved them. See, we're in a series called Post-Christian Jesus, and the concept is this. We're searching for these different things. We're searching for identity. We're searching for peace. We're we're searching for justice, for joy. And our culture gives us these strategies to run after these things, and at the same time, 2,000 years ago, Jesus did too. And so we're putting what culture says up against what Jesus said. We've got two deals on the table, and we're deciding which is a better way to do life. I wanna ask you do you remember 10 to 15 years ago, tolerance was one of the primary words in our culture? It's something that we, we're not really hearing too much today, but 10, 15 years ago, we heard that a lot. There were these stickers, maybe you saw them, stickers with religious symbols that spelled out the word tolerance that people would put on the back of their cars businesses would have tolerance workshops, there was genuine fear that somebody was gonna call you, label you intolerant. And I don't want you to hear me wrong, okay? I I don't think that tolerance in and of itself is a bad thing at all, okay? When we're trying to live in a world where we disagree with people more and more on significant issues, we've gotta figure out how we treat people with respect. I love the way that Tim Keller says this, he's a pastor, he says this, real tolerance does not require us to abandon our convictions. Real tolerance is revealed by how our convictions lead us to treat people who disagree with us. But a tolerance that only tolerates people who think, believe, vote, and live like us is not tolerance. It is covert prejudice at best, and it's thinly veiled hatred at worst. It is scorn covered with a mask of insincere niceness. Tolerance in and of itself hear me, is not a bad thing. But here's what I would say. It might be a decent baseline. It is an unworthy ideal. I mean, think about that. Think about the word. We're saying that the goal of our relationships with people that we disagree with is to tolerate them. I mean, it's one thing to tolerate a product, okay? Like, I really want a cup of local craft coffee, but I'll tolerate going to Starbucks, okay? Starbucks is not craft coffee, in case you were wondering, all right? Or like, You go to a restaurant and you ask for a Coke, and they tell you they only have Pepsi products, and you tolerate it. When it happens, we tolerate it, which means fine. I'll go with the Pepsi, okay? But I'm gonna sigh about it and let you know that I'm not happy about it. But what about relationships? What about people? I mean, who wants to be tolerated? Do you? I don't. I I don't want to walk into a party and they go like, "Jesse's here." Okay, we'll just tolerate him for a while, and hopefully he leaves after a little bit. Like, I don't want, none of us want to be tolerated. I think originally, in everybody's minds, tolerance meant this is supposed to mean, hey, we disagree with each other. But, hey, that's okay. Let's stay in relationship. Let's keep talking. And eventually, we're going to grow into mutual understanding. We're going to keep on giving each other the benefit of the doubt. Eventually, we're going to build a richer relationship together if we just stay in that relationship. And that could have been Cool. But instead, really, it just played out the way that we tolerate Pepsi when Coke isn't available. And if you're a Pepsi fan, buckle up, okay? We're not, we're not done with this yet. <laughs> it goes like this. Well, we disagree, but you do your thing and I'll do my thing. You stay over there, I'll stay over here. Let's just tolerate each other and we'll go our separate ways. In the same way that you resent the Pepsi more and more with each and every sip throughout dinner, we ended up doing the same thing to people who think differently than us, people who vote differently than us, people who view the world differently than us. And so tolerance naturally leads to contempt. Here's the definition of contempt, it goes like this, contempt is the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving of scorn. Dallas Willard says it this way, it's redefining people as something other or less than how God sees them or defines them. And when we see contempt in somebody else, when we see it in ourselves, it makes us sad, it makes us angry, and at the same time, it makes sense. Because tolerance didn't result in bringing together a racially, socially, religiously, politically diverse society. Instead, tolerance just encouraged us to stay in our own lanes, Give an odd and a wave to people we disagree with, but stick really, really close with the people that agree with us. Tolerance did not bring us together. It gave us a moral-seeming way to stay apart. And those people with the other worldviews, with different beliefs, with different voter registrations, they became the others that we swore to tolerate. And after 15 years of keeping them over here and staying really, really close with our tribe over here, it naturally led us to contempt. Tell me you don't see this playing out today with how we talk to each other. It's on all sides, specifically online. And if, and if you don't think this is true, then just test this out for me. This afternoon, just go home and post on your Facebook, what's everybody think about the vaccine? <laughs> you just try it, you just go for it, give it 15 minutes. You know what'll happen. Today, we'll even, we'll even pre-contempt. Here's what pre-contempt looks like. We naturally assume that people who disagree with us, they're looking at us with contempt. So before we can even hear anything that they're saying, I'm already looking at them with contempt. I've already decided I disagree with the person, I don't like them, and that they don't have anything good to say to me. And you can tell that by the way that we talk to them, by the way that we treat them. It's like what so many of our dads said when we were in middle school. If you, if you think there's gonna be a fight, aim for the nose, be the first to swing. And now we're so conditioned to expect to fight with other people that even our culture's best attempts at peace and fairness and justice, they just come across like we're picking a fight. It's pre-contempt. I'm not only going to voice my opinion, I'm going to voice it angrily. I'm going to aim for the nose, be the first to swing. Tim Crider, he's a writer for the New York Times. He writes about our culture's insatiable search for things to be offended by. And he coined this term, calls it outrage porn. Here's how he describes it. He says, our culture feeds off of feeling number one, right, and number two, wronged. Outrage porn resembles actual pornography in that it aims for a cheap, temporary thrill at the expense of another human being, but without any personal accountability or commitment to that human being. It often escalates into the public shaming of groups and persons as offended parties rally together against a common enemy. Think about how often you find yourself extra angry, more angry than you should be at something you see online. And think about how you feel. We're conditioned to feel this way. Number one, more entrenched in our own opinion, but then number two, feel like we or something that we care about has been personally attacked And so what do we do? We swing back. And this isn't just a post-Christian issue. I'll be honest with you, I think this might be an even larger issue with Christians ourselves. Jesus has a lot to say about contempt too. What Jesus says about contempt 2,000 years ago, I think it's really fitting for us what we're living through today. Jesus talked about contempt in his Sermon on the Mount, one of his most famous sermons. And look what Jesus says. He says, anyone, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister Raka, that means idiot, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. I think what's so interesting is the insult I've seen online, on social media, more this year than I've seen in any year past is that word idiot. You see people calling each other idiots all over the place or talking about other people like idiots all over the place. And raka, raka was this word, it sounded like you're getting ready to spit. It's like raka. It held that much contempt. I think it's similar to the word uh today. You see that when somebody posts something online and somebody just comments uh, as if they're getting ready to throw up. Jesus isn't just talking about words here. He's talking about a mindset. He's talking about when you take people who are different than you, you take people who you disagree with, and then you put them in another category. You give them a label. They're an idiot. They're a fool. They're they're just a bigot. They're a conservative. And there are many worse names that some of us have been called. And transparently, there are many worse names that some of us have said. And when they're just a blank just a blank, just a blank. We don't have to think about them as human, we don't have to think about them as image bearers of God. If I'm contempting you, I can think whatever I want about you, I can say whatever I want about you, I can do whatever I want to you. And so many injustices have been done because of contempt. Viewing somebody else as unworthy, as less than, it's expendable as just another blank. In the last 15 years, here's what I've seen. I've seen tolerance, which led to contempt, which ultimately led to more injustice. Now, I just want you to wait a second, because I know what some of you are thinking, okay? Jesse, it's not contempt that leads to injustice. It's power. It's greed. It's authority. It's discrimination. It's selfishness. It's and- I, like, I, I hear you, okay, but here's what I would argue with you. None of those things would happen in the first place without contempt. Contempt is the disease. Abuse of power and authority are symptoms. Contempt is the disease, greed, discrimination, selfishness at the expense of another human being. Those are the symptoms. Because before you can treat somebody in an unjust, not right way, You've got to look at them as less than, less important, less worthy, et cetera, or simply you just have to not care about them, but you're not looking at them as a fellow image bearer of God. And I tell you, people of my generation, millennials, Gen Z, we've seen this in ourselves, we've seen this in others, and we're very concerned about social justice, We look around at the world and we want things to be made right. We wanna use the influence that we have to make a change. And to be clear, that's a very, very good thing. In fact, when it's leveraged and developed in a Jesus-like way, it could be the thing that makes our generation great. But here's the key. We have to take this desire for justice and allow Jesus to transform it and develop it in our hearts. And I wanna share a, a caution to people in my generation and the generation after me. Anytime our cries of justice are laced with contempt, they don't understand. They'll never care. I'm not even gonna listen to what they have to say. We gotta be careful. Because contempt can motivate a lot of people. It can get a lot of stuff done. But at the same time, contempt can never, ever achieve true, genuine, Jesus-like justice. So what does Jesus like justice look like? Because let's be clear, Jesus cares deeply about justice. It was on the front of his mind. Isaiah 42, it's a prophecy about Jesus. It says this, this gives us a picture. Look at my servant whom I strengthen. He's my chosen one, he pleases me, and I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. How is he going to do that? Well, he will not shout and raise his voice in public. He's not going to shout or raise his voice. He's not going to crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. So he's not going to crush people. He'll bring justice to all who have been wronged. He'll not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout the earth. He's not going to quit on it. And even distant lands beyond the sea will wait for his instruction. People are gonna wait for him to come and bring justice to them. Jesus cares about justice. But at the same time, the word that Jesus uses for justice is a different word than we've come to see justice mean today. Because the biblical sense of justice, it's a larger, more fruitful concept than what we think about when we think about modern justice. See, the word for justice in the Greek is dikaiosune, It's the same word that we translate as righteousness. So to God, justice and righteousness are interconnected. And that gives us a fuller picture about what Jesus means when he says justice. People act in the right way. They're treated in the right way. They treat others in the right way. They live in the right way. People get what's right for everyone. Dekayasune is man as he was designed to be. People being treated as God intended them to be treated, seeking the good of all, everything made right, that's righteousness and that's biblical justice. I mean, this is the reason that we still talk about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. It isn't because the speech fueled outrage, although there was plenty of outrage to be leveraged if he wanted it. Instead, the speech is so compelling because it's giving us a picture of dikayasune, humanity as it's designed to be. He's given us a vision He's given us a picture of God's design for a diverse humanity, and it wasn't a vision of tolerance. It wasn't a vision of contempt. It's a vision of brotherhood, of reconciliation, and how humanity was designed to be. His dream was founded on the words of Jesus because he knew that only Jesus could show us the path to justice. Only Jesus could show us the path to righteousness. Only Jesus could show us the path to dikaiosunai. And maybe Jesus' path to righteousness, it's eventually gonna lead you to get involved in politics, with legislation, certain types of advocacy. It could lead anywhere, but it always starts in the same place. It always starts not by looking up and out at our world, but it starts by looking down and in at our own hearts, our own actions, our own responsibilities. See, when Jesus was at the table, he didn't say tolerate. Instead, he said this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus tells us to start with love. At the same time, he says that he's given us a new command, but if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the command to love each other is not really a new command. God's been saying that all throughout history. Jesus said that earlier in his ministry. So why does he say it's a new command? And I wanna show you something here. In the, um, in the original language in the Greek, there's no period there after love one another. It's like a run-on sentence. So look at this. Jesus is saying, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another. The new command isn't the what, it's the how. We love people how Jesus loves us. Jesus says if we want the world to know who we are, if we want the world to know who he is, the most prominent, the most important thing that people should know us by is our love. Not our job, not our family, not our political party, not our view on masks, not our team, not our hobbies, Love and love how Jesus loved us. Now, what does that love look like? Romans 5 tells us God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, love motivates us to sacrifice. You cannot get biblical justice unless you start with love. And love can lead to repentance, it can lead to anger, it can lead to sadness, it definitely leads to action, but ultimately, love always leads to sacrifice. I mean, think about Jesus' sacrifice. He sacrificed his position. He voluntarily came down from heaven to earth. He was born into a low-income family. He lived his life in the middle of lost and broken people. Jesus, he sacrificed his power. All of eternity he'd been served in worship, and then he came and he was homeless. He spent his time with the least of these. He spent his time serving others. Jesus ultimately sacrificed his life. He willingly died so that people who would believe in him, put their trust in him, could be reconnected back to God. Love led to sacrifice, and that sacrifice for us led to righteousness, led to Dekayasune. Led to justice, righteousness, justice, dikaiosune. They're only possible because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. He makes us righteous, and then he gives us that ability to share that with the world. And the love that Jesus showed us was demonstrated most deeply in how he sacrificed himself for us on our behalf. And if we ever want to see a world that looks like the righteousness that Jesus describes, we'll need to join him in sacrificing for it. See, sacrifice shows the world that we're more interested in the good of everyone than we are concerned about just taking care of ourselves. So I want to show you these two approaches to how we engage with people who are different than us. First, it's tolerance, which eventually leads to contempt and then to more injustice. Or we look at the example of Jesus, who starts with love, which motivates him to sacrifice, which ultimately brings about justice for us that we can share with others. Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, Bernice King, she said it like this. I've struggled with hate and bitterness for many years. I mean, my father was assassinated. My paternal grandmother was assassinated. My uncle died mysteriously, but I had to get well or I would have been consumed. I'm grateful that I learned that love makes justice happen. They will know we are Christians by our love. And that's what Jesus has told us all along. Remember that night with Jesus' disciples, He's got this diverse group of friends sitting around the table. He's telling them this message that he wants them to hold on to for the years once he's gone. And he says, This he says, Love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And the disciples, they carry on that message. The early church has started. Everybody has different views, everybody comes from different backgrounds. And the disciples help these people learn how to love people who are different than them. And this world-changing movement of love and sacrifice has started. Years later, Paul writes about this love in 1 Corinthians 13. And he says, Love is patient, and love is kind. love never fails. And that love that Jesus and Paul talked about they were also talking about loving people who are very very different from each other, very very different from us. And today the most important way that we can practice love like Jesus practiced love is to have a table like Jesus. So let me ask you, does your table look like Jesus's table? Do the people that you invite to dinner, do they all look like you, dress like you, make as much money as you do? Do the people that you go out with, do they talk like you, think like you, view the world the way that you view it? Do they vote like you? Do they post like you? Do they argue like you? If the answer is yes, you might not have a table like Jesus. I've been asking myself a lot of questions like that this week. I uh, was having a conversation the other night with some friends who view things differently than I do, and as we sat around the fire pit, you know what I wasn't doing? Trying to listen, trying to ask good questions, trying to understand. I was making my point. I was winning an argument, and honestly, it felt good to me I have no idea how it felt to them. I don't know how they felt about the conversation. You wanna know why? Because that didn't matter to me. I was more concerned with winning an argument than I was about the other person. I tell you, I'm committed to doing better than this in the future. So here are some questions for us, for you, for me, for us. Who do you need to invite to dinner? Who do you need to spend time with? To listen, but maybe not to speak. To understand without needing to be understood. To show the radical love of Jesus that actually empowers us to love people who are different than us. People that we didn't think that we could love on our own. I'm not saying that you need to start by inviting 12 radically different people to dinner at your house. Although I wouldn't be against it. But the person that you struggle with at work what if you took them out to coffee or lunch and you just listened? That neighbor that you know has different views than you have. What if you got to know him? That family member that you've been avoiding. What if you reached out and spent some time with them? Get to know people who see the world differently than we do. Ah, But Jesse, Jesse, you, I, I've tried that. It didn't work, okay? Nothing will ever change. It, it's just gonna be a waste of time. Maybe, but again, we—the point isn't to change their minds. The point's to love them, even if you never see eye to eye. I want to show you one more example of what this looked like in Jesus's life. Back to this table, Jesus has this last supper with his disciples, and there's someone there who is invited to dinner—somebody none of us would invite to dinner. His name's Judas. Judas had already made an agreement with the religious leaders that he's gonna betray Jesus and have Jesus murdered. And Jesus knows, and he still invites Judas to dinner. And just to show how radical Jesus' version of love was, to show how serious he was about having a diverse table, look at this. At the dinner, Jesus announces this to the disciples. He says, very truly, I tell you, one of you is gonna betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to which of them that he meant. One of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, and Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. So leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now this is important because in the Middle East two thousand years ago, they ate around a dinner table like this. But at the same time, they they wouldn't sit in chairs. They'd actually recline at the table. They'd have their feet out and their head and their hands up like this, and they would pass the bread from right to left in the seat to Jesus's left that was the seat of the highest honor at the table that's the seat that you want to be in and Jesus passes the bread from himself to the person sitting to the place of highest honor at the table and who does he pass it to he passes it to Judas i want you to think about this judas is preparing to betray jesus He'd been stealing from him. He didn't have confidence in him. He was working against him the whole time and Jesus still invites Judas to dinner. He still washes Judas's feet with the rest of the disciples. He sits Judas at the seat of honor and just like John was reclining, was leaning back against Jesus, Jesus would be reclining and leaning back against Judas. Jesus' head near Judas's heart As if to say, as if he's pleading, Judas, it's not too late for you. I haven't given up on you. I'm still fighting for you. I still want good for you. Jesus did not tolerate Judas at dinner. Jesus didn't write him off. He didn't sit Judas at the end. He didn't turn all the disciples against him. When everybody else would have leaned away, Jesus leans back into him. Judas, I'm still for you. I still love you. I still want good for you. But eventually, Judas still leaves and he still decides to betray Jesus. But I want you to watch the next time that Jesus sees Judas is the night that Judas is betraying Jesus, is turning him over to be crucified. And what does Jesus say to Judas, his last words? He, does he say, Judas, you got it wrong, man. You're on the wrong side of history. You need to wake up. Look at what he says. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend, not betrayer, still calls him friend. That's love, and love always trusts, love always hopes, love always perseveres, and love never fails. And that's what Jesus does for us too. You see, while we were still sinners, while we were still off doing our own thing, while we were even working against God, he does the same thing that he did for Judas. His head is near our heart, and he's still pursuing us. He's still wanting good for us, and he's made things right for us. And he gave us a final reminder for ourselves, for our church, for our communities, for the world, He said, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Jesus knew that there would be times where we would struggle to remember this. And so he brings us back to the table. He knew that we'd need to be reminded of his love, reminded of his sacrifice, reminded of his call to love others. And he gave us these symbols, bread and juice, that you've been given when you walk in. You can pull those out now. He gave us these symbols so that we could remember, so we could remember his sacrifice, so that we could remember his love so that we could remember we experience a righteousness and a justice that we didn't earn. And people who put their faith and trust in Jesus, they've been taking this meal, they've been taking communion for the last 2,000 years. So take out the piece of bread. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. We remember how Jesus' body was broken for us so that ours didn't have to be, and so we eat the bread together and we remember Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink from it all of you. This is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We remember Jesus' blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven and we drink the cup So God, God, we remember. God, so often we forget, so often the things that we've got going on in our lives cause us to forget. But God, you bring us back to the table to remember. We remember the love that you showed for us. God, thank you that you didn't just tolerate us. God, you didn't just put up with us. God, we give you so many reasons to just tolerate us and put up with us, but God, you love us so much that you sacrificed your son Jesus for us, and now we experience a righteousness and a justice we don't deserve. God, it's our hope, it's our prayer that you would show us people this week that we can take that love to people that we can sacrifice for, people that we can bring justice and righteousness to. because God, that's what we wanna do. God, we know that you want righteousness and justice for everyone that we encounter, and so God, we pray that you would use us to be vessels of change, vessels of justice, of love, and of sacrifice, all because of your son, Jesus, who made that sacrifice for us. God, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray and we worship. Amen.